Where did he go? He disappeared on us. Okay, thanks Joe for your sharing. Encouraged by your brother. <clears throat> I think we were separated by 13 years. I think he's 13 years older, younger than me. And I think uh, Derek is 12 or 13 years younger than Joe. So that's how, like, you know, much older I am to Joe. I remember Joe, like, um, early 90s, playing ball with him. He was a little scrawny little kid and used to rock him on the court, you know. And then a few years later, he was rocking me on the court. And not just physically, but to see him grow spiritually, to be a believer, to become a believer, to grow in love for Christ, love, in, love for Christ church, and see him um, labor alongside as a partner in the ministry. It's an encouragement to us all. Praise God for the work that God is doing at CVF UC Irvine. I see a whole contingent of you over here on my right, and uh, we welcome you to our church. We pray for you. We pray for God's work on that campus, and we pray that the gospel will go forth, and many young people will receive God's grace and be saved. And while they're, um, you know, while, while they're still young, that they will redeem the time and uh, labor for Christ. God saved me at a young age, sophomore year in college, and uh, those uh, times of growing as a collegian, ministering and praying and serving the Lord were sweet times, and may God grant it to all of you. Uh, in your college years. Well, good to be back here in the pulpit. Um, I'm going to go back to Second Timothy chapter 1 and continue our study through that book. Uh, at the rate we're going, it's going to take us a while, but I want to just strive to be faithful and continue to study this text and ask God to bless us as we meditate upon His truths. This morning we'll look at verses 3 through 5, but just to set a context, we're going to read verses 1 all the way to verse 7. Before our study, it'll just be for a few verses, 3 through 5. 2 Timothy 1, 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers, night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God did not give us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. It's worthy for us to mention again that it's a misnomer to label uh, Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon as prison epistles. Paul was incarcerated while he penned those letters, but he was not in a literal dungeon or a prison. He was in house arrest during his first missionary venture to in Rome. Second Timothy is rightly understood as a prison epistle because Paul while he is writing this letter, is in a literal dungeon. He's in a prison. He has been tortured, been persecuted. He faces imminent death. He's being treated as a common criminal. It, Paul understood this, and we, we know through church history, that Paul has come to the end of his Christian race. He is in the last round of his arduous fight of his faith. He has suffered from day one of his ministry. From day one. His ministry has been marked by suffering and persecution. So much so, he had the scars on his body visible to show his commitment to the, to the Lord's ministry. Galatians 6.17 He begs the church at Galatia, the region of Galatia, let no one cause me trouble. For I bear on my body 
the marks of Jesus Christ. So his scars proved his um, horrific experiences as a minister, as an apostle of Christ. He is now over 60 years old. His body is showing its age. His strength is ebbing away. And he doesn't have the honor that befits an aged man. He is being treated with contempt and scorn. As a lawbreaker, as a criminal, we must keep in mind, and it's so easy for us to lose sight of this, that this is a real person. This is a real historical event. This is a true letter by a true person that was alive to almost 2,000 years ago. And he was in a dungeon. And with much pain in his body and in his heart, he wrote this letter. And as we read this letter, and as we get to his uh, personal words to Timothy, as we go over the, as we have skipped, gone by the parts of introduction, we're getting to the part where he addresses Timothy, we find to our amazement what is really in his heart. It is shocking to find that we find Paul in this circumstance we find that his heart is full of thanksgiving and gratitude. His heart is full of thanksgiving and gratitude. Verse 1, he identifies himself as was custom in first century letters. Verse 2, he addresses the recipient of this letter. And then he gives a common triune greeting, grace, mercy, and peace. And then the first word that he utters First word he writes in his letter is karin, gratitude, thanksgiving. The second word in the Greek is have I. Have thanksgiving, gratitude have I. In the English translated, I thank God. I have thanks. He did not lament the unjust and cruel punishment that he was experiencing. He wasn't bemoaning his execution that soon awaited him. His, his thoughts were on his sovereign God, on memories of his beloved Son and the Spirit with whom he had spent so many blessed hours in mutual service to God. He hoped to see Timothy again. He longed to see Timothy again. He asked Timothy to come to him quickly because he knew his time was drawing to a close. Yet... There was a clear, uh, clear and present uh, possibility that he would never see Timothy again. And yet, in the midst of this situation, he says, I have thanks. Only the Lord could give such an unbe- unbelievably beautiful perspective. Some of us uh, might say, you know, he's lying, he's acting. He's putting us on. How can anyone be thankful in that situation? We might say in our hearts, I bet inside he is bitter. He is angry. He is full of venom towards the guards, towards the Roman government, towards the fellow believers who deserted him. I bet he is angry at the world and he is angry at God. I talked to a pastor recently and he was telling me how he's struggling so much with anger. He's just struggling with anger. Not against the world, not against God, but against people in his own church because of the sufferings that he is going through. My wife was telling me, and we had this experience at our home, so we understand very well that moms gather together for prayer and they're all sharing their struggles and they're all struggling with anger. Not at the world, right? Not at the neighbors. Anger at their own children. Um, I know a little bit about that kind of anger. We have four at home, five and under. I love my kids, but I struggle, along with my wife, with anger. Now, if we were to compare what that pastor is going through, compare 
what I'm going through with my four children. And compare that to the Apostle Paul. I would be embarrassed to mention it to Apostle Paul. Yeah, brother, I understand. I how hard it is. You know, I'm at home too. You know, <laughs> I've got four kids. It's challenging to be thankful. I mean, it pales in comparison. I can't even mention it before the Apostle Paul. Now, how was the Apostle able to have such gratitude toward God in the midst of such an awful situation? We find the answers in verses 3 through 5. By his writings, we get a glimpse into his mind. And inspired by the Holy Spirit, he wrote them down and reveals to us how Paul was able to have a heart of gratitude in the midst of such sufferings. We find that Paul received grace from God by God's ordained means. A theological concept here, means of grace. Means of grace. Means of grace in Christian theology are those things, those instruments, those agencies through which God gives us grace, and grace broadly, sustaining grace, grace to believe, the grace to endure, grace to hope, grace to trust, grace to follow, grace to uh, be thankful, to be content, all of that, to continue in ministry, it is all by grace. God has ordained certain means by which He grants us grace to live the Christian life. Paul received grace from God through these means, through these instruments. And that way, he was able to fight his flesh, fight his pride, his own anger, subjugate his flesh, walk by the Spirit in the midst of this with a clear conscience. Tell Timothy and tell us, He's thankful. He's grateful to God. Now, means of grace can be separated into two categories. Two categories. Extraordinary means of grace and ordinary means of grace. Extraordinary and ordinary. And if you had to choose, I think we would all choose the first. Alright? Do you want, you know, extraordinary lunch or ordinary lunch? I want the extraordinary lunch. Right? Do you want right extraordinary vacation or ordinary vacation? Okay, so means of grace. What would you want? We would all want if we had to, if we could choose extraordinary means of grace. Now, what are some examples of extraordinary means of grace in the scriptures? Exodus 14, parting of the Red Sea, and Moses saw that was a means of grace to him, running for his life by the largest superpower in his time. By Egyptian soldiers and warriors in their chariots, full armor, running for their lives. He turns back and they're engulfed in the Red Sea and destroyed. And Moses bursts out in song. Means of grace to him. Bursts out in praise to God. Hey, if I experienced that, I would, my faith would, would grow, grow stronger. What about Exodus 16? Manna from heaven. I'm hungry. Hey, what is this? That's literal. Translation of manna, right? What is this? It's bread from heaven. Alright, John chapter 6 as well. Alright, now what is this again? You know, uh, five loaves and two fish multiplied, 5,000, more like 12,000 people eat and they have 12 basketfuls uh, full of uh, bread and fish left over. Right? That's an extraordinary means of grace. People saw it and they marveled and believed God. All the miracles that Christ performed, extraordinary means of grace. First Kings 18. Elijah against the prophets of Baal, right? What happened? Fire from heaven. It's a, you know, a, a super heavyweight fight. And it's Eli- Yahweh, Elijah's God against the prophets of Baal and their God. And God wins by fire from heaven. I mean, go on and on. Isaiah 6, we studied that a few weeks ago. Isaiah sees the glory of God. Extraordinary means of grace to Isaiah. Acts 2, tongues of fire, you know, prophecy, gift of miracles, gift of knowledge. I think all of us would want to choose these things over against the ordinary means of grace. And so today, many, far too many, 
chase after these spectacular, extraordinary works of God. And their motivation is what? It's that my faith is weak. I'm struggling in my marriage. I have a child that's going astray. I have marital problems. I have health issues. My heart is weak. God, I need your grace. I want to see your glory. And so, they chase after these people who um, promise uh, extraordinary means of grace to their lives. You come to this meeting. If I lay hands on you, if you anoint yourself with this oil, if you pray in this way, if you do certain things, you'll receive grace from God. Well, we find that, first of all, these extraordinary means of grace were not effectual for all people who experienced them. That means of grace is only effectual to those who believe, to those who have non-saving faith, a false faith, a temporal faith. All these experiences have no benefit. I mean, John 6, they ate the bread, and 666, many of them departed, left the Lord, refused to follow Christ any longer. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 5, this is Paul's uh, argument against uh, the nation of Israel, that though they had all these great spiritual experiences, they did not benefit from them because they didn't have faith in God. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 5, I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud. All passed through the sea on dry land. They were all baptized to Moses. They all ate the same spiritual food, manna. They all drank the same spiritual drink from that rock in the desert. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, verse 5, and they were overthrown in the wilderness. In fact, these extraordinary means of grace, while beneficial to those who believe, for to those who do not believe, it becomes a source of hardening their hearts, a source of judgment, a source of condemning their disbelief or non-belief. Because what happens, they crave for more miracles, more experiences, more bread, more food, more water, more experiences, miracles, rather than more of God. So Paul says, it's not an issue of these extraordinary ordinary, it's about faith. Far too often, it did not benefit those because they did not have faith. Secondly, they were unique works of God. They're not normative. These are extraordinary means of grace were given not to grant grace to the observers or the participants. These extraordinary means of grace were given to affirm the messengers. And we studied that many months ago about the miracles were given by God to affirm the Old Testament prophets like Moses. How will, how will Pharaoh know? Anybody can say I've come from Yahweh. How will they know I am your spokesperson? I am your ambassador, your representative. So God gave him the ability to work miracles, giving affirmation, giving him credentials to speak on God's behalf. Elijah was the same way. Our Lord was the same way. All the miracles He performed weren't for the benefit of the observers. It was for them to know that He was a man sent from God. God Himself. The apostles, 2 Corinthians 12, 12. All the miracles they performed was to attest to the fact that they were sent by Jesus Christ. We don't have prophets any longer. We don't have apostles any longer. Christ's incarnation was only for 33 years. He's resurrected, glorified, ascended into heaven. He's forever at the right hand of the throne of the king. And so he's not with us today. So there are these, these extraordinary means of grace are, are not normative. They were unique for that time for those people. What is available to us are the normal Ordinary means of grace. Now, don't get discouraged. Oh, man. I got the ordinary seats. Right? I got the ordinary vacation. I got the ordinary lunch during communion, and she got the extraordinary lunch. Right? No. No. These aren't ordinary in the lesser sense. 
They're ordinary in the sense that they're mundane. They're unexciting. They're not spectacular. But they are as beneficial to true believers. As Moses was encouraged and, and, and blessed by observing the parting of the Red Sea, Isaiah seeing the glory of God, as the apostles were and seeing the risen Lord, us, these normal, mundane, ordinary means of grace are just as beneficial to us by faith in Christ. God has not left us without help, without means of grace. God has ordained to us means by which our faith is sustained and our faith is grows and even as, a, as the Apostle Paul, we can have thanksgiving in the midst of suffering, midst of trials. Now we can go to a whole litany of a list of uh, mundane, normal means of grace. Uh, the Bible is definitely a means of grace. Preaching of the word by you today choosing to come to church to sit under the word of God preached to you you're receiving a means by which your grace your faith is strengthened you're receiving grace from God right now by having God's word preached to you having the Bible in your hand and being able to study it and read it and meditate it's a means by which God assists you in your heart in your pursuit of Christ Prayer is a means of grace. Fellowship is a means of grace. Where we come together and we share and we talk and we spend time together and we leave and our hearts are emboldened and enlarged, inspired to follow Christ. We receive grace from our time with one another. The Lord's Supper, remembering Christ. But the physical act, the taking the bread, and taking the cup together in the context of Christ's church is a means of God's grace. Every time we do that, we remember Christ in that way. We grow in faith. We grow in strength. We grow in thanksgiving. These are all normal, ordinary means by which God grants sustaining grace to us. Now one more qualification about, about concerning this normal, ordinary means of grace Ah, uh, means, these means of grace must be defined by the, by the Bible as a means of grace. Must be defined and stated by the Bible as a means of grace. It's not to be, it's not arbitrary. We cannot determine or determine by our experience that it is a means of grace. I, maybe I used to kind of say this earlier in my marriage to, to my wife how playing basketball was a means of grace to me. I, I can help me spiritually, encourage my faith, and not being able to play ball would discourage my pursuit of Christ. Or I would tell the guys in the court how they would encourage me if they didn't shoot the ball. Right? It would really help my faith if you please stop shooting <laughs> and just rebound and pass. Right? I mean, you know, sometimes we experience that, do we not? I mean, uh, sometimes food can be a source of grace. We, we see it as spiritual encouragement. Right? Or maybe for sisters, what is it? Shopping. Wow, man, when I, that deal I got, my faith is enlarged. <laughs> or frozen yogurt, now I can go evangelizing. Because, no, I mean, we, you know, no, <laughs> means of grace must be defined by the Bible and stated by the Bible. Now, we might like it, we might enjoy it. You know, fellowship might be better over far as opposed to something else. But doesn't mean like that's a means of grace. Just you enjoy it more. Must be biblical. Now all that to say verses three through five in Paul's opening paragraph, we find three biblical means by which God gave grace to Paul. So then in the midst of this difficult time he was thankful. So for you, if you have a hard time being thankful to the Lord right now if you have a hard time, difficult time, I mean gratitude to God, you search your heart and you're full of grumbling, full of complaining, discontentment, your heart is full of animosity, enmity, anger, wrath, hatred, malice, slander, 
And you're saying, it's impossible for me to be thankful because of these people, of my job, of my finances, or of my health, then this sermon is for you. And it's, again, normal means. You don't have to go to the Red Sea. You don't have to go to the temple. You don't have to uh, see a miracle. Very mundane means by which God will grant you thanksgiving in your heart. First one is found in verse... Verse 3, I thank God whom I serve as in my ancestors with a clear conscience. As I remember you constantly in my prayers night and night, night and night and day. As I remember you in prayer, I am, I thank God. We find that intercessory prayer is a means of grace. Remembering fellow believers in prayer gives us grace. Paul had a very strong commitment to pray. He repeatedly makes mention of how he rigorously and steadfastly committed himself to pray for others. Romans 1, Ephesians 1, Philippians 1. Ephesians 1, 16, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Philippians 1, 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. I always pray. And thank God for your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. It was one of his core commitments to pray for others because he understood that praying for others was a way that God had ordained for God to give him grace. He became more and more thankful, more and more he prayed for others, not for himself. More and more, he interceded and petitioned before God on behalf of other believers. More and more, he was grateful. You know, the Bible says, it's more blessed to give than to receive. So, it is more blessed to pray for others than to be prayed for. You are more blessed. You will be more blessed by praying for others than praying for yourselves or have others praying for you. Praying for others is a means by which God blesses and ministers to us. God's love is to save us from ourselves. Intercessory prayer saves us from navel-gazing, from being introspective, being self-focused, self-centered. And what results from being centered on self results in depression, results in discouragement. Heartache. When I think about myself, when I consider my heart and my focus myself on my problems and my thoughts and my sins, it's a downward cycle, vortex that is unending. Who will save me from such devastating consequences of being focused on myself? God's love is James, pray for others. Consider others. Deny yourself. And when I, when you, and we pray for one another, consider uh, others' trials, other circumstances, others' difficulties, and see firsthand God's grace upon others, it's God's way of saving us from our self-centeredness. Saves us from the oppression of self-centeredness and the ensuing depression of discovering that we are not worth even our own attention draws us near to God. That is why intercessory prayer and thanksgiving go hand in hand. Ephesians 1.16 again. Colossians 1.10 We pray this, giving thanks to the Father. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 and 18 Pray continually, giving thanks in all circumstances. Intercessory prayer, thanksgiving go hand in hand. That's the first means of grace by which Paul was able to be filled with gratitude by praying for Timothy, by considering this young man who was in over his head. Persecution of Christianity has just started. He is experiencing governmental persecution, widespread persecution, and considering Timothy's state and God's grace upon him, Paul received grace. Secondly, second means of grace the love of fellow Christians. 
the love of fellow Christians. Now here is the great apostle, spiritual giant. He is the apostle to the Gentiles, the mighty defender of the Christian faith. And he is remembering Timothy. And what comes to his mind? And what does he write down as he remembers Timothy? He writes down, as if we're the manly man of our church, it might be difficult. Come on, brothers. Let's soften our hearts, right? Here is this manly man, and what does he remember? He remembers Timothy's tears. He remembers Timothy crying. Now, I don't know, I was struggling whether to share this illustration or not, but um, tears are a funny thing. It's hard to discern tears, what tears really mean. Especially like when women cry, are they happy or are they sad? <laughs> Nobody knows, not even the woman, right? <laughs> I remember uh, reading youth ministry years ago and one of our students got into Stanford and she was telling us wow, how she told her mom she went to Stanford and her mom cried. <laughs> and then my friend said, yeah, my mom cried when she found that I got to Cal State Long Beach. <laughs> I went to Cal State Long Beach. I went to Cal State Long Beach. So you can make that joke, right? So her mom cries because she gets into Stanford. Our mom cries because we went to Cal State Long Beach. Both tears, but different mindset behind the tears. Well, likewise with Timothy. Paul says, I pray for you, brother. I'm interceding on your behalf. And what comes to mind are your tears. Now, why was Timothy crying? I believe it's tears of love. Tears of affection. Tears of personal care. And why does Paul remember that? Because Paul is in prison all alone. He says in 115, everyone has deserted me. Everyone has left me. 4.16 He mentions these two men, Phygelus and Hermogenes. He mentions them because many believe they were believers. They were Christians. Maybe two disciples among the 70 who were strong defenders of faith. So Paul expected that others would leave him, but not Phygelus and Hermogenes, but even them, they deserted him. And later on we find even Demas, because he loved the world, deserted Paul. He was all by himself. As he remembers Timothy, he says, I know Timothy, you love me. You care for me. And he receives grace. His heart is strengthened. His faith is strengthened because he knows that a fellow believer is suffering with him is laboring with him, cares for him, and loves him. I am not alone. Timothy knows my situation. He is praying for me, and he cares for me. I'm certain Paul Paul knows that that churches are praying for him, that many believers know a situation and care for him. But for believers, it's not enough to know that the churches are praying for us. That churches care for us. What we need is individuals to care for us and love us. And that is a means of God's grace. That is a means of God's grace. That is why the Bible so emphasizes Christian love for one another. That ministry is not about good preaching. Ministry is not about good worship, Joe. It's not. Not about how good the guitar is and how good the singing is or how like lively the music is. It's not. It's not about how good the programs are. Ministry is fueled by Christians' love for one another. Where do I get that from? First Corinthians thirteen, one, two, and three. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and knowledge. If I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. So the Christian life 
beyond just the word, beyond just prayer, beyond the church, what makes these things powerful, what God uses to bless our hearts, encourage us, sustain our faith, and grant us hearts of gratitude and thanksgiving is when Christians show personal love toward us, care for us individually, and express that care, demonstrate that care. Marcus and I were talking this past week, and and he was saying how people come to Cornerstone because of the preaching, but they stay because of the shepherding. They stay because of the relationships. They stay because of the Christian love that is practiced in our church. When they first come, they don't know about that. When they first come, they don't know about you guys. They don't know who you are. They don't know what's really going on. But they come because of the sermons. Yet once they're here, they're truly blessed. Because it is not a movie theater mentality here where as soon as the service is over, everybody rushes to the parking lot on their way home. It's not strangers sitting next to one another, just gazing towards the front without loving one another. No, it is believers under the word, under prayer, under, under the authority of God, and yet relating to one another in true love. And that's what... Um, makes all makes the word makes prayer makes ministry powerful that's what causes a believer to truly grow in Christ um, I think of uh, foster care and yes uh, children need uh, food and water and shelter and changing of diapers but if a child grows up as a foster child receiving all the physical needs met and yet the child doesn't receive parental love. The child will still grow up. He will still, the boy will become a man, or a girl will become a woman. But they will grow and uh, they'll be a hollow person. There'll be something important missing in their lives. They won't be whole. They'll be institutionalized. I think similar to Christians. There are so many Christians who've been part of churches, part of ministries. They received the word, they received prayer, but never received the means of grace, of personal relationships, of someone investing in them, caring for them, loving them, admonishing, correcting, imploring personally. Even when the Apostle Paul needed this. For the Apostle Paul, the Word of God was, in a sense, not enough. When he remembered Timothy in prayer, he remembered Timothy's love. How many of you are receiving this means of grace? Do you think you can be an island, have a monkish approach to Christianity, to Christ, and all alone with word and prayer you can grow as a Christian? Oh, you're misinformed. Right? You're missing out on a key means by which God grants you grace. So the first two is intercessory prayer. Second is the love of fellow believers. Third comes from verse 5. Paul remembered Timothy in his prayer, remembers his tears, and third, he's reminded of Timothy's sincere faith. Sincere faith, the fellow believers, is a source of immeasurable encouragement and strength to our faith. Isn't that true? When we have fellowship with others and we talk and someone shares and you see sincere faith, genuine trusting in Christ, are, are we not challenged, humbled, encouraged, inspired in our own pursuit of Christ. I was talking to a mom recently. She was going through a very difficult trial in her life. She was telling my wife and me that she is thankful for this trial. That she's grateful to God for this uh, heartache in her life. 
because it is causing her to love Christ more. Causing her to depend on the Lord more. Now, because of this, she longs for heaven more. She thanks God for this trial in her life. It's purifying her faith, humbling her, giving her joy in Christ alone. My wife and I left that fellowship. We were so humbled, so thankful, so encouraged. We experienced what Paul experienced here in 2 Timothy 1.5. He looked at Timothy. He didn't see a temporal faith. He didn't see a false demonic faith. He saw sincere faith. No duplicity, no hypocrisy. Genuine faith from his heart, private life and public life. This is why the Bible is not just a list of to-dos and uh, what we should not do, what we should do and what we should not do. That's why the Bible is not just truths and doctrines and propositional statements. This is why the Bible is filled with narratives of men and women who lived out their Christian lives. Because by us reading of their lives, their sacrifices, their devotions, encourages our hearts. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11, the hall of fame of men and women of faith. A blow-by-blow description of godly men throughout history who trusted in God and how their faith caused them to live in obedience. Verse 4, it was faith that made Abel offer to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. Verse 7, By faith Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Verse 8, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs of the same promise. He was looking forward to the city that had foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Verse 11, By faith Sarah herself received power to conceive. Even when she was past the age, she considered him faithful who had promised. Verse 13, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged them, they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Verse 23, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents, because they saw that the child was beautiful. They were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt where he was looking to the reward. Does that not encourage our faith? By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who was invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood, so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. Verse 32, the writer of Hebrews says, What more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, women received back their dead by resurrection, some were tortured, refusing to accept release, so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They were went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Why? Because these men and women are men and women of sincere faith. 
of true, genuine faith in God. So reading about them blesses us. We receive grace from God. And thinking about believers now in our church and believers throughout the world now who have genuine faith is a means of grace. Allows us, grants us the heart to be thankful. Now, that's the positive side. Let me go to the negative side. As men and women with sincere faith encourages us, the opposite is also true. The opposite is also true. Those who have insincere faith, hypocritical faith, false faith, discourages true believers. It's like friendly fire. Those professing to be Christians who prove to have false faith discourages believers, pains believers. It's like rubbing salt on the wound. Men like Phygelus, Hermogenes, like Demas, they have temporal faith, fleeting faith. When he considered Timothy, he says, you have sincere faith. Sincere, the Greek word is a compound word composed of a negative prefix attached to hypocritus. If that word sounds familiar, because we know it in the English, it's the English word hypocrite. Timothy, you have an unhypocritical heart, unhypocritical faith. A brief word study of hypocrite. In the context of a Greek drama, the term hypocrite was applied to an actor on the theater stage. Since an actor pretends to be someone other than himself, Hypocrite was applied metaphorically to a person who acts a part in real life, pretending to be better than he actually is. Someone who simulates righteousness or true faith. In the Greek literature, hypocrite was either used neutrally or in an undesirable way. In the Bible, it is always undesirable. It is always negative. It always signified the one who works a deception by feigned piety. It embodies a purposeful intent which stems from a deep-seated core of evil. It is not merely the failure to live up to a certain holy standard. It is the condition of a person who is controlled by the sin, by the sin nature, and intentionally deceives others. So, as much as we are encouraged by those with sincere faith, we are hurt, pained, discouraged by those with hypocritical faith. Um, so Bob and I talk about this once in a while. We don't like going on Cornerstone, our website's uh, photo album. You know, I, I don't remember the last time I went before, like 2005. Right? Because you look at those pictures, and I, we see many of you, and we're encouraged. But we see pictures of people that were once members of our church. There were once really outwardly growing in the faith, serving with us, some even leading the church with us. And now, they're not walking with Christ. Now, they're not living in obedience to Christ. They're not part of Christ's church. We remember the things that they had said while in our assembly. They would say things like, how they love Christ, love the church, committed to ministry. And we remember them and our hearts are so discouraged. It's not that they left our church for another church. That's fine. But it's because they left Christ's church. They're not walking with Christ any longer. So I have to ask, honest question. How many of you today have sincere faith 
and how many have hypocritical faith. To think that the cornerstone past was just abnormal, that that was exception. The normal is everybody has sincere faith. That, can't, that is not the case. That is normal. That there are some here who are pretending, who are wearing masks, who are playing a part, they're acting, and they're not fooling God, and the only result in hurting Christ's church. I read this sermon by Spurgeon this week on traits of hypocritical faith, characteristics of hypocritical faith. Now, I'd much rather listen to Spurgeon than James Shen. So, I'm just going to read a portion of his sermon where he lists um, seven marks of hypocritical faith. Let's all listen to this dear pastor, Prince of Preachers, with an eye on ourselves. Not eye toward others, but eye on ourselves. He says the first feature of a, of a person with hypocritical faith is that he or she is known by their speech and their actions are contrary to their speech. They do not do what they say. Spurgeon said, as Jesus says, they do not practice what they preach. The hypocrite can speak like an angel. He can quote texts with the greatest speed. He can talk concerning all matters of Christianity, whether they are theological doctrines, mystical questions, or practical difficulties. In his own mind, he knows a lot, and when he speaks, you will often feel embarrassed at your own ignorance in the presence of his superior knowledge. But watch him when he comes to his actions. What do you see there? The fullest contradiction of everything that he has just said. He tells others to obey the Bible. Does he obey it? The hypocrite does not. He will tell others what they should do, but will he remember his own teaching? Not he. Follow him to his house. Trail him to the marketplace. See him in the stores. And if you want to refute his preaching, you may easily do it from his own life. My dear friends, is this the way it is with you? You are a member of a church, an elder, a deacon, a minister. Is this your case? Is your life a contradiction of your words? Do your hands witness against your lips? How is it with you? With embarrassment, each one of us must confess that to some extent our life is contradictory to our profession. We blush and we mourn over this, but I hope there are some here who can say, notwithstanding my weaknesses, with my whole heart have I endeavored to run the ways of your commandments, O oh my God, and I have not intentionally spoken anything with my lips which I did not intend to carry out in my life. Oh, believe me, my brothers and sisters, talk is easy, but walk is hard. Speech anyone may attain, but action is difficult. We must have grace within us to make our life holy, but holiness only expressed with our lips needs no grace. Holiness that is expressed only with our lips needs no grace. The first mark of a hypocrite is that they contradict by their acts what they say with their words. Do any of you do this? If so, stand convicted of hypocrisy. Bow your heads, confess your sin. The second mark is that they do what is right, that they may be seen by others. That they do what is right, but their motivation is to be seen by others. The hypocrite sounds a trumpet as he gives money to the poor. He chooses the corner of the street for his prayers. To him, virtue in private is almost a vice. To do the right thing in secret is almost a sin. He can never detect any beauty in virtue unless others are looking at his deeds. The true Christian, like the nightingale, sings in the night, but the hypocrite sings all his songs in the day. 
when he can be seen and heard by men. To be well spoken of is the ecstasy of his life. If he is praised, it is like sweet wine to him. Applause is what the hypocrite is seeking after. They avoid all secret religion and only live where men may see them. Now, is this the way it is with us? Let us deal honestly with ourselves. If we give to the poor, do we desire to do it in secret where no one will know? Are our prayers offered in our closet where only God can hear the cry of our secret prayers? Can, can we declare that the opinion of others is not our guiding law, but that we stand servants to our God and to our conscience and will not do a wrong thing just to be accepted? The third mark is that hypocrites love titles and honors and respect from others. Hypocrites love titles. They love honor. They love respect from others. The Pharisee was never so happy as when he was called rabbi. Can you honestly say from your soul that in religion you are not seeking honor or title? That you want no higher degree than that of a sinner saved by grace? And no greater honor than to sit at the feet of Jesus and to learn from Him? Are you willing to be despised as a follower of a carpenter? If so, I think you have very little hypocrisy in you. But if not, then you fill the requirement. Fourth mark. Sign of a hypocrite is that they strain out a gnat, but they swallow a camel. Strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. Spurgeon said, I've always noticed that hypocrites watch for the little things. They are always searching out little points of difference. Yet they themselves have neglected the more important matters of the law. While they are so particular about the tithe of mint and cumin, yet they hoard wheat and other commodities in their own barns. Always suspect yourself when you are more careful about little things than about great things. Fifth mark. People who neglect the inward part of the religion and yet they are concerned primarily with the outward part of religion. As our Savior said, clean the outside of the cup and dish, but first clean the inside. There are many books which are beautifully bound, but there is nothing worthwhile inside. And so there are many persons, they have a very spiritual exterior, but there is rottenness in their hearts. Do you know such people? Perhaps if you know yourself, you may discover one more. Two more. Just give you the marks. You may know a hypocrite by this sign that his religion depends on the place or the time of day. His religion depends on the place and time of day. His religion is confined to Sunday mornings, Wednesday nights, certain location and finally number seven hypocrites are generally severe with others and very lenient with themselves they are harsh with others and gracious toward self they want to see the speck in their brother's eye and they rationalize and justify the plank in their own eye Three quick closing thoughts. I want to ask you, are you neglecting these ordinary, normal, mundane, unexciting means of grace? Are you chasing after some spectacular experience, some extraordinary event to grow your faith, all the while neglecting what God has given to you right now, available to you, you're able today to pray for others. Pray for your parents. Pray for your siblings. Pray for your relatives. Pray for fellow believers. 
And you will find after praying for the needs of others, you'll be more thankful. Are you loving others? Are you receiving, investing in people so that you might have a relationship of loving one another in Christ? Are you pursuing sincere faith? And are you marking out those who have a life of sincere faith? Are you considering their sacrifices, their devotions, their commitments so as to encourage your faith? Secondly, consider that Timothy's sincere faith was first seen in his grandmother, Lois, and his mother, Eunice. Sincere faith begins at home. Hypocritical faith, therefore, also begins at home. A child sees hypocrisy in the home. You're discipling that child to hypocrisy. No need to say anything. No need to teach, no need to debate or instruct. By your example, you're teaching and training your child that you are to behave in one way at home, in private. But when you're at the church, when you're in the community, when you're in the world, you must act another way. You're training and passing on hypocrisy. But when a child sees genuine, sincere faith, no difference at home and in the world, you're passing down what is most precious. What do we want to pass down to our kids? This testimony, this example, this heritage of sincere faith. Where, you know, your dad wasn't perfect. You know, your mom, she wasn't perfect. Right? But you know, we confessed and we strove to be consistent at home and in the world. And children, we collect and remember that's right. My parents were not hypocrites. They received that and they passed. They continued to live that out. That's why Paul mentions mom and grandmother. Thirdly, the way out of hypocrisy, the way out of hypocritical faith is the gospel. This is the gospel to you. That God knows you. He's the only one that has full knowledge of you. So there's freedom before God, before the gospel. Before God, the cross of Christ, you can now take off your mask. You put away your pretense. You can stop acting. Right? Stop performing. You can rest and be true to God. God calls us sinners. Wicked depraved men and women, nothing but enmity in our hearts toward God. And we can be, be joyful and say, yes God, you are right. There is no righteousness in me. There is no goodness in me. You have found me out. You agree with the gospel. Yes Lord, I am a sinner through and through. All I've done is sinned against you. And therefore the gospel is the way out. Gospel says, well, you're a sinner. I have the cure. I have the antidote. I have the solution. It is my son's cross. Because you needed a savior. My son came down on the cross for your sins. So that you might be saved from sin. Saved from hypocrisy. Saved from this burden of performing. Pretending to be righteous when you are not. Now you can confess freely that you are a sinner and that Christ is righteous, that He has saved you from sin. The way out of hypocrisy is not more working, more works, more good deeds, more righteousness. The way out of hypocrisy, the only way, is to lay hold of the gospel of Christ and acknowledge it, confess it, agree with it wholeheartedly, and trust in Christ, repenting of your sins. Let's pray. Lord, so much has been said. The subject of our study 
so tremendous, so overwhelming to us. Lord, just the knowledge that you know our ways, you know our hearts, you know our thoughts, you know our words before we even, we even utter them in our, with our mouths. This, this truth is too grand, too lofty for us. We bow down before you as a great heart searcher. And we pray, O oh God, that you would cause our hearts to be softened and humbled and molded by your scriptures. We pray that um, the Holy Spirit of the Word of God will convict souls and convict us of our hypocrisy. Convict us, O oh God, for our hypocritical, disingenuous faith. Lord, that you would grant to us a heart that would hate this world and hate our lives, hate our sins, so much so that we deny ourselves to follow after you, that you would be our only joy, you would be our only source of hope, that you would be eternal life to us. So Lord, we would be, we would, ah, leave behind ourselves and all our masks, all our hypocrisy, and in integrity and, and truth, we would uh, trust you and follow after you. Or may uh, the Holy Spirit do surgery in our hearts, cause us to repent and confess specifically, truthfully, wholly. And Lord, uh, in this way, you grant us, O oh God, to honor you. We thank you for the example of the Apostle. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.